Hi, I'm Leah Potter. And I'm Meredith Roten, and we're two news editors at the GW Hatchet. This is the Hatchet's weekly podcast, Getting to the Bottom of It, covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. Meredith and I were at the faculty senate meeting on Friday, where there were several presentations, including one about alumni giving and another about an update to the school's discrimination and harassment policies. Yeah, really busy meeting, actually. First up on the agenda was Donna Arbide, the relatively new vice president of development and alumni relations. She had basically the plan for the next couple of years for development at GW. She acknowledged the issues that GW has with alumni giving, especially we've historically struggled compared to our peer schools. She acknowledged that some of our peer schools are raising $600 million, for example, at some of the the higher end ones, and we just haven't been able to compete, especially during our campaign. She pointed out that we raised about the same during the years of our campaign that we had raised in previous years. And this was the billion dollar campaign. This was the the billion dollar campaign, GW's largest ever fundraising campaign, which was completed in 2017. She had pointed out that even that big campaign push, the marketing, the extra investment into that campaign wasn't enough to kind of advance giving at GW, so she really pointed out that we had been struggling, but basically laid out her plan for fixing that. And she really did have some goals set for this. Um, First thing, she said it's now a requirement for any staff that doesn't have a management aspect to their job that they have to go on 150 visits with anyone from alumni to a major donor to a former parent or student, anyone that basically could be a potential donor. And they have to, each staff member has to go on 150 of of these. And this is the first time that a goal has been set this high. And she thinks that it will just really help talk to alumni, first of all, and uh, build basically the base of people because she, she really emphasized that a base of people giving a smaller amount of money can really help sustaining university and can go a long way. And she obviously wants to advance major gifts as well, but she emphasized the importance of that. One other area that she addressed to the Faculty Senate was a lack of younger alumni donating. She mentioned that young younger alumni have been in a demographic that have been donating less, and, and that goes into the alumni giving problem as a whole. And to address that, she is creating a goal for fiscal year 2019 of having 16,000 alumni donors. And to do that, she she's using partially these constituency visits. And also there's some new stuff in alumni uh, relations where they're creating a new alumni association internally. Um, That's a big topic last month. And also donor retention, she said, was something that GW had struggled with. Traditionally, more than 60% of donors were still donating yearly. So like the donors last year, some of them aren't continuing to donate. It was like a one and done type of thing. And she wants to change that and really make sure that GW's base is strong. She also mentioned that for some of the past donors that they were giving out hats and thank you notes just to make sure that they know that their donations are appreciated and maybe that they'll consider donating again in the future. Yeah, and and something else that she talked about with these gifts is GW faculty and staff being brand ambassadors 
and wearing, she even talked about just wearing more GW apparel and talking about the university more and positively because she said faculty can really make a change if they are invested in this because if, if faculty who, you know, spend the most time at the university or, you know, just as much time as students sometimes, if they're not invested, then no one will buy it, you know? She talked about the nursing school as an example almost 100% of faculty in the nursing school have given a financial donation. And she said that that's not the case in some schools and faculty can really help in that aspect and it also helps show how dedicated uh, people are to GW and can inspire others to donate. And after the faculty senate meeting, you spoke with some experts about what this might mean for faculty members and how they might react to more of a push for them to donate to the university. What did experts have to say? Basically, experts agreed that faculty investment is a great way to show that people care about the university and people really believe in it. Because if faculty who already give their blood, sweat, and tears, essentially, to the university and, you know, spend all their time there and spend a lot of their resources, like, making sure the experience at the university can be the best it can be and they still want to give a donation, that is impressive. I mean, it's easy for faculty to say, you know, I I just can't be bothered to do this. I do so much for this university. But if they they do that, then it's really a, a testament to the dedication and it will inspire people to donate. And at the meeting, Donna also mentioned that she'll be working with deans in terms of goal setting. Donna Arby really emphasized that donors want to know where their money is going and everyone else at the university should know where their money is going. She said that when she first got to campus, she started asking people, where did this money from the billion dollar campaign go? Like, how did it help you? And people were unsure. They said, well, I know it went to name the Milken School, and I know a couple of other things, but I'm, I'm not really sure generally where all that money went. And she said that's not right. And so she's working with the deans of individual schools and also with Sylvia Murata Walters of the Faculty Senate. She's the chair of the executive committee, and she's working with them to kind of develop a plan of aspirations that all these schools have and what they would like to see themselves doing in just a couple of years. So donors know, like, in donating, I'm supporting these projects, I'm supporting this research, I'm supporting these students. And she said that encourages people to donate and it helps the transparency of the whole process. And next up in the presentations was Carolyn Laguar brown who's the Vice Provost for Diversity, Equity, and Community Engagement. And she gave an update on something the university has been working on for a while, the discrimination and harassment policies at the university. And this is something you've been following for a while. So can you tell us more about the policies? Yeah, at the faculty senate meeting, Carolyn was presenting a draft of proposed policies in respect to discrimination and harassment at GW. And this draft has been in the works since around the spring, which is when three women from GW's chapter of Alpha Phi were involved in a Snapchat that circulated around campus featuring a racist caption. And that incident sparked outrage across campus from multiple different student groups, and administrators like Carolyn met with several different students, many different student groups to discuss what their thoughts were on the current policies in respect to discrimination and harassment on campus. 
many students felt like policies were not explicit enough in their language, were not specific enough. In fact, the policies before these proposed changes did not include specific definitions necessarily for what would constitute as discrimination or as harassment, which both students and administrators agreed was detrimental to the campus community. How have these policies changed to be more specific? These policies are slated to now include specific definitions for discrimination and harassment, but also they'll now include examples of what those look like in different settings at GW, and they also include examples of potential sanctions or corrective action items that might result after an incident of discrimination or harassment. Why is it so significant that they're updating these policies right now? Well, the first part of this is they haven't revised these policies since November of 2011, so looking at about seven years since the last revision. The other piece of it is, and this is something that experts in both Title IX and discrimination and harassment policies at other universities spoke to, was that having clear definitions can make students more aware of what they are able to report. So one thing that experts noted is without a clear definition, a student might experience discrimination or harassment, but not know that they are able to report that to authorities or administrators. And is this the final update to the policies? They will continue to review these policies with other administrators, but also other members of the faculty senate, other faculty members in general, and then also they plan to work with other student groups to review the policies as well. And they're hoping to have these ready to vote on for the May 2019 Board of Trustees meeting. It was nice recapping all the events and presentations at this past week's faculty senate meeting. Yeah, thanks, Leah. We'll both plan to keep you updated about these presentations in the future. I'm here with culture reporter Sydney Lee to talk about a speech and hearing program at the university that benefits the lives of trans women. Hello. So Sydney and I wrote this piece on the speech pathology programs here at GW, which consists usually of solo or group training sessions that test the pitch, resonance, and intonation of trans women's voices. We talked with two different professors. Sydney, what do these professors work on and how long have they been doing this? So we first talked with Linda Seafried and she works mostly in the clinic. She has several graduate students that work with different clients and she kind of trains her graduate students on how to work with their clients on elevating pitch, all the intonation, stuff like that that you mentioned. So we also had the opportunity to speak with Adrienne Hancock and she's working more on the research side of it starting this new choir singing group that is kind of like a, like I said, a research project to see how singing can affect trans women or just non-binary individuals. So Hancock's group is going to be a more of a low-key setting where they meet in the music department for four different sessions for an hour and a half each and work on singing together and also doing some research along the way on how that affects trans women's voices. Yeah, and there are three grad students who are conducting these sessions like in a choral group kind of manner. All three graduate students have music backgrounds and so it made them kind of the perfect candidates for this. Ian Newell said that he was first inspired by other trans vocal choirs and saw on a Facebook page 
like people requesting kind of a interdisciplinary sort of research regarding trans voices, speech training, and the way that the voice can change in choir. Like Sydney said, we talked with Hancock and Seafried to basically get a lowdown of how they've seen patients transform over the years. And um, Sydney, what was some of the findings that the professors were able to discover? Well, the one thing that really stood out to me in the interviews was, of course, there's benefits to the voice and they mostly work on range, elevating the pitch. But one thing that I thought was really interesting that Siegfried was talking about um, was the way that it kind of affects them internally and not about the physical part, but the mental part about being comfortable in their own skin and kind of finally feeling like themselves with their new transformed voice. Yeah, I think she talks about them being more finding the artistic yeah side things of that they never knew they enjoyed before like poetry and art um, yeah it just kind of feels more complete I think is what she was getting at but what does it mean do you think for a voice to be more feminine well I'm transgender and I like know the consequences of having a more feminine voice or not. I think even this podcast has seen my evolution in a way, but I do think that it affects external interactions as much as it does your internal embodiment. You know, something as simple as going to a 7-Eleven can be a very paralyzing experience if you don't have the kind of qualifications for strangers to have you pass. And I think a lot of trans women find incentive with this free program, with this free kind of research to just test it out and see with anything, like, what can work. So what these speech pathologists are trying to get trans women's voices to a point where in pre-screening you may have a voice that is more typically male. The typical woman's voice is at, like, 180 to 200 decibels. So, like, by the time that the singing choir is over, they want the screened participants to be able to go from a place of lower male range to a comfortable typical female range. But there are also added benefits to being in a group singing class as opposed to taking solo voice lessons. Sydney, could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so one of the biggest things is just being surrounded by other people who are going through the same thing. Being in a group setting is just more comfortable and specifically this program is free. So like you were saying, a lot of those individualized one-on-one sessions can be very pricey. So this is like a perfect opportunity for people who are just starting to see if this is something they're interested in. And also, I know Hancock was mentioning that singing is something that people normally experiment with anyway. So it doesn't matter who you are. If you're in a choir, you're always experimenting with your voice. So I think being in a choir singing type setting makes you more comfortable to go ahead and just experiment with the range of your voice and it's not as intimidating as being in front of like a microphone in like a one-on-one session. Sure, yeah. Well, Sydney, this was a very awesome topic and thank you for sharing it with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us on Getting to the Bottom of It. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by news editors Meredith Broughton and Leah Potter and features culture editor Margot Dines. This podcast is produced by managing editor Matt Colon and video editor Ariana Dunham. Music is produced by Olk Studio. 
Special thanks to Sydney Lee for joining us. See you next week.